you have your Bibles, you can open up to Acts chapter 12 is where we'll be this morning. Acts 12, you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in a seat back around you. Uh, and hopefully in that Bible, you should be able to just open up right to the bookmark, and that should take you to Acts. Uh, and, uh, and then you can flip over to chapter 12 is where we're going to be today. So um, as you're turning there, I would like to thank uh, our worship team. Our worship team, they're awesome and so good and talented and love Jesus and love God. Like it's not just a bunch of Christians playing music. It's a bunch of, it's a bunch of men and women who, who love the Lord and want to help us engage with him on a Sunday and engage with him and slow down and connect and consider him. Um, so I'm so thankful for our, commun- our, uh, our worship team uh, and the time and effort and energy they put in, especially this summer as they've been, uh, it's been a lot of different people involved and, and moving pieces and it's been great and wonderful. So everybody on the worship team, thank you so much. Oh, you guys all just sat together. That worked out well. Thank you, guys. Uh, and thank you for everybody else who is on the worship team who isn't just sitting in this front row. Uh, thank you. If you are interested, if you have some musical talent that you would like to contribute and use, uh, please, again, connect group or uh, connect cards. You can fill those out. You can send an email to me. Uh, let me know. I'll put you in touch with Daniel, who's our worship leader, and he will uh, talk to you about hopefully getting you up uh, and having you connect with the band. So um, Acts 12, like I said, is where we're going to be today. So there are certain books of the Bible, certain passages, concepts, theological uh, ideas that are difficult to comprehend, that are straining, that need, you know, some legwork to really kind of wrestle with the text, to ask questions. You know, there are places in the Bible where we need help to consult scholars and, and prayerfully consider and wrestle and, and sit and under, to understand and apply. What is God is trying to tell me? What is God trying to, how do I respond to this? How is this for me? It was written to a certain people at a certain time. How do I take that and apply that to me? I don't think today's chapter is one of those places. Today's chapter is about a man named Herod and about God. And this chapter's theme, its focus is a very simple one. If you are against God, you will lose. If you oppose God, you will be defeated. If you are in conflict with God, you will be overcome by God. The chapter begins with seemingly the triumph of evil, and it ends with the word of God increased and multiplying throughout the land. Again, today's theme, if you, if you take nothing else, the big idea for this book, if you oppose God, you will lose. That's where we're going this morning. I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump into Acts 12. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. God, we pray for um, the kids of this church. Lord, we pray for Grace Place, and we pray uh, for the leaders of Grace Place, that they would, um, that you would give them boundless energy and enthusiasm and um, joy as they get to teach and serve and love the kids of this church. Lord, we pray that as um, our leaders read and pray and sing and lead that time that they are reflecting you to the kids of this church, that, that the kids that you have entrusted to us as parents and as a community, as a church, that they would come to know you at an early age, that they would come to know how good you are and that they would walk with you for generations, for, for decades and, and decades. God, we pray that you would, um, you would make yourself known up there as the kids are learning about how good you are and how much you love them. And for us here, This morning, God, I pray that you would help to continue to bind us together, to strengthen this community. Lord, we come this week having opposed you at different times in different ways, whether intentionally or unintentionally, whether in a variety of different ways. We have come through this weekend. There are times where we chose our way over your way. We chose sin and rebellion against your way. And God, we bring all of that to you this morning. You know those things. You aren't shocked by that reality. And we come to you this morning looking for grace and mercy and hope and just looking for you, looking for rest, looking for you to show up and to speak to us and to have a word for us to encourage, to challenge, to teach, to rebuke, to help us to grow in who you have made us to be. God, we pray as we continue to study the book of Acts, that we would be emboldened to, and challenged and encouraged as those early Christians were to be open with our faith, to share and continuously with our words and with our actions reflect you to this world. And Lord, in the places where 
it's hard in the spots, in the areas of our life where it's hard to be a Christian, that you would remind us that you are with us, that you would remind us that you have a plan and a purpose and a reason for who you have made us to be and where you have placed us. God, as we open your word this morning, help us to understand, help us to comprehend, but help us to respond. That we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but we would respond, that we would be doers of the word. And so, Lord, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Acts 12. I'm going to read it, and then we'll go back and, and talk through it. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James and the brother of, the brother of John with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel, that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left them. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when he came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, where they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So right at the top, we have introduced to a new leader, someone new that we haven't seen in the book of Acts yet, Herod the king. This is Herod Agrippa, king of Judea from about A.D. 37 to about A.D. 44. He is the grandson of Herod the Great, who was the one who slaughtered all the babies in Bethlehem, trying to kill baby Jesus. He's also the nephew of Herod Antipas, who Jesus stood before in Luke 23 as part of the plot to kill Jesus. So the Herodian family has been in conflict with the Christians for a while up until this point. Either intentionally or unintentionally, they have been at odds. Our Herod, Herod Agrippa I, is also at, di at different times in history referred to as Herod the Great, like his grandfather. He was well respected and, he accept and accepted by many, especially the Jewish community. And through happenstance, we don't have to go into the history, but he kind of found his way, kind of lucked his way really, into being in charge of all of Judea and Samaria, basically. Herod's grandmother was part Jewish herself, and Herod privately and publicly would support and advocate for the Jewish people. 
He kept holy days. He would show up to festivals. He actually participated in some of them. These things endeared him to the Jewish people as they saw him as a sympathizer and helpful and a helpful ally in regards to the Roman rule. And so it kept him in good standing with the Jewish leaders, with those who ran the temple, and they themselves kept the people from making too much of a ruckus, making too much of a problem for Herod. There was this kind of codependent relationship between Herod and the Jewish leaders. Herod, his whole life, was raised by and around politics. And that influenced him greatly. His motivations as he rose through the ranks were always, what's next? What do I have to do? Who do I have to make friends with? What do I have to do to grow in influence and power? Now we see in verse 2, that might have been the motivation in having James killed. This is the first of the original 12 to be killed for his faith. We know Judas killed himself, but of the original 12 disciples, James is the first one to be killed, to be martyred. Up to that point, the 12 had pretty much been protected, right? When Saul was persecuting the, uh, the Christians in Jerusalem, the apostles stayed put. And they weren't hiding, they just stayed put, and they apparently didn't feel the wrath of Saul. Up to that point, they had been pretty well protected. And you'd think if anyone, especially of the 12 original disciples, apostles, were going to be protected, it would be James, because he was in the inner three, right? So you have Jesus and his 12 disciples, and then from that, if you read the Gospels, often there was James and John, who are brothers, and Peter. They were known as the inner three by scholars later on. They were kind of, they got to see some other things that the other disciples didn't. They got to be in the room when Jesus raised the little girl from the dead. They got to be at the Mount of the Transfiguration. They got to see these different things. They were kind of on the inner, inner circle. And so you would think one of those three would be definitely protected by God from anything like this happening to him. Now, we don't know what it was that caused James to be targeted and killed, but we know that this act led to an uptick in Herod's popularity among the Jewish leaders. Why that is is probably due to the church's recent endeavors into Gentile relationships. We've talked about it the last few weeks, that the gospel has broken in and has gone from Jerusalem to throughout Judea to Samaria, and now even to the Gentiles, even to those unclean ones, the gospel has broken through. And not only has the gospel been preached to them, but the Holy Spirit has fallen on them. God has accepted these Gentiles into the church into his community, and there are those of the Jewish persuasion, there are those that are still part of the temple who look at that and see that as evil and wrong. And so, whatever it was that James did that led for him to be killed, it, like I said, created an uptick in popularity of, for Herod amongst the Jewish leaders. They were opposed to this new development that had encouraged the Christians to go and pursue the Gentiles. And so it is no coincidence that after the murder of James was seen so favorably that Herod targets the apostle directly responsible for this influx of connection between these Jewish Christians and the Gentiles, and that's Peter. So he arrests Peter. For what? Again, we don't know. And this is Peter's like, I don't know, I lost count, like seventh or eighth time in jail at this point? I, I lost count. It's at the beginning of Passover. And so the plan is to make a public example of Peter after the Passover celebration, once everything is done, because Passover is a holy time. It is well-respected. And again, Herod always wants to keep nice relationships with the Jewish leaders. So he's not going to do anything like publicly kill an apostle during Passover. He's going to wait till afterwards. What a nice guy. And so he waits, and he would parade. The plan was to parade and probably publicly execute Peter to gain more influence and support. So to ensure that this would happen, it says that there was four squads of soldiers are guarding Peter, assumingly in ships. A squad is four guards. So we're talking 16 guards are responsible for Peter. And as he says, saw in the text, Peter is asleep. He's chained on each side to one of, so he's got a guard on each side he's chained to, and then there's two at the door watching him. These four would take turns, would rotate out with three other squads. It seems like Kind of overkill, doesn't it? It's the kind of thing you would do for like a super violent criminal. This is like the kind of like guarding that like the Joker gets in Arkham, right? It's intense. It's the kind of thing you would do for a violent criminal or in this case, a prized possession that you don't want to lose and you want to hang on to. But lose is exactly what Herod does. He loses in every way possible. He loses his authority 
he loses on his reputation, and ultimately, he loses his life. But to say lose is to infer that he had control over these things, right? When in actuality, these things are taken from him, and they are taken by the same one who allowed him to have authority and reputation and life itself. God takes these things from Herod because God is the one who has the true power and authority. God's patience runs out for Herod, and Herod the Great is made into a great example of the power and authority of God. God does this in many ways. One of the ways he does that is by taking Herod's prized prisoner. The night before Herod's going to make a big show of Peter, God puts on display who is really in charge. While Peter is asleep, chained to two different soldiers, an angel shows up, light shows up in the cell. It says the angel struck Peter on the side to awaken him. How is it possible that Peter could sleep so deeply, laying on the ground, chained to two soldiers, considering all of that's happening? How could he sleep so well? I mean, as far as he knew, he had to know that this was probably going to be his last night on earth, or at least that was the plan. And yet he has within himself a peace that surpasses all understanding to allow him to sleep and to rest. In my head, when it says that the angel struck Peter on the side, in my head, like, the angel shows up, there's this big light, right? And he's like, Peter, get up. Peter! And, like, the angel's got to, like, kick him to get him up. Like, that's how deep Peter is asleep here. And so he strikes Peter on the side. Peter finally wakes up. And when he wakes up, the angel says, get up. The chains have fallen off Peter's wrists. The angel tells him, get dressed, put your shoes on, put your coat on. It's time to go. Now we see in verse 9, he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Peter didn't know for sure that what he was being told and what he was actually doing was real life. You ever have one of those dreams where when you actually wake up from it, you swear it was real? You swear it was actually a thing? When I was younger, I used to sleepwalk. One time I made it out in high school, I made it out to my car, dressed for school before I realized what was happening, like fully came to. Peter has no idea, Peter's not sure at this point, is this real or is this a vision? And he's no stranger to visions, right? We already studied the chapter where he's on the roof praying and God drops down the sheet full of animals and he does that three times. So Peter had visions, Peter had this kind of relationship with God where God appeared to Peter in dreams and visions. And so Peter's sort of half asleep, half awake. He was deep in sleep. The angel had to kick him to wake him up. He's deep asleep, plus the fact that he's known to have visions from God. So Peter thought, maybe this is a dream. Maybe this is God saying, you know, physically you are in prison, Peter, but God will make you spiritually free. Maybe that's what was going through his head. But no, it's real, Peter. The angel leads Peter past the guards, past the two that were sleeping, past the two that are at the door. They get to the city gate, this big giant iron gate, and it's locked up for the night. And this gate swings open, pushed by the hand of God. Now once they're outside the city, the angel leaves Peter. He finally realizes, oh, that was real. I just got rescued by God. This angel just led me out of prison. I was supposed to be dead tomorrow morning, but once again, God has taken care of me. And from here, Peter decides, I need to go find my friends. I need to go find my community. And what have they been doing? What have the Christians been doing this whole time? It says in verse 5, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. They've been in earnest prayer for Peter. James 5.16 says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayers of the faithful, the prayers of God's people have great value and importance and power. 1 Timothy 2 says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. In Galatians 6, Paul writes, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And one of the ways that we as Christians bear each other's burdens is to lift one another up in prayer. The prayers of God's people give us an access to the Father that those outside of a relationship with him do not have. Did you know, on our, web, on our website, churchinroscovillage.org, you can go, there's a page on our website where you can submit prayer requests. 
And you can see they're, they're listed publicly. And one of the things that fascinates me is that the majority of the prayers listed on our website right now, I'll bet you 90% of them are from people who don't go to this church. People who have just found our website, clicked their way through to this page, submitted their prayer request, and sent it in. Hoping someone's going to see it, hoping someone's going to pray for them. And what's cool is if you submit a prayer request on there, there's little praying hands that show up and your prayer request, and when you click on it, you could pray for somebody, and if somebody clicks on that little button, you get an email that says, hey, you got prayed for. It's pretty cool. You could do it anytime, churchinrostervillage.org. But I think it's interesting that people who don't even go to this church find our website, click their way through, and leave a prayer request. Why do you think that is? Because they know that the power of God shows up when God's people pray. They leave prayer requests hoping that God's people, these Christians, us Christians, would lift up those things to God. I encourage you, leave prayer requests out in the hallway. we got a whole board, a whole wall dedicated to leaving prayer requests and praying for one another. Do you actually see it or do you just walk by it? Do you actually stop and see it? Because people do leave prayer requests on there. Do you actually use it? Prayer is this thing. Yes, it is this personal conversation with God. It's this time where we can, we can bring our burdens, we can bring our joys, we can bring these things to God, and it's good and it's, it's beautiful. But also, prayer is a privileged and when we have the attention, we have the ear of the God of all existence. It is a privilege that we should use and lift up one another and lift up our brothers and sisters and lift up those even that aren't our brothers and sisters. Because we have an access to the Father that many people don't. The Christians outside Jerusalem were doing that for Peter. They were lifting him up. They were praying earnestly for him. And unbeknown to them, God was answering their prayers in real time. Peter is let out and wakes up, and he gets. He says he goes in verse twelve to the house of Mary, the 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 mother of Mark. That's the mother of John Mark, the writer of the gospel that has his name. Her house is one of the many places that the church in Jerusalem was meeting, as they had so many people at this point they didn't have a place that was big enough to accommodate. So basically, they broke the church up into house churches, and Mary's house was one of those places. So Peter shows up. And they're still actively in fervent prayer for their friend. Peter knocks on the door. Maybe a hush falls over the room. Who's knocking on the door in the middle of the night? Maybe they're coming for us. Somebody send somebody. Somebody go check it out. And so they send this servant girl, Rhoda. She goes to the door. She hears Peter's voice, right? Who is it? It's Peter. She hears his voice. Probably not too loud, right? He's probably not yelling his name out because, you know, he is on the run at this point. But eventually, Rhoda realizes and recognizes it's Peter's voice. She gets so excited. Oh, my gosh, Peter, you're here. How is this possible? Oh, my gosh, that she goes and runs. I got to tell everybody. I got to let them know God has answered our prayers. Oh, man, and she runs away, and she forgets to unlock the door. Come on, Rhoda. You literally got one job in this moment. And so she goes back and she tells everybody, Peter's at the door. They must have been real tense. Who was at the door? It's Peter. Uh, are you sure? They think she's lost her senses. They think she's lost her mind. There's no way it could be Peter at the door. But she keeps insisting, no, it's him. I promise. I know his voice. I heard his voice. It's him. Now, who long? No, you're crazy. No, it's him. How long? They're going back and forth. And Peter, this whole time, is standing outside, again, on the run. The group finally gives in a little and says, well, maybe, okay, best case scenario, it's not Peter, but maybe it's his angel. And this idea, there was this belief that the idea of guardian angels. And so there was this concept that not only do people have a guardian angel, but your guardian angel can take the form of you, that can appear like you. And so they said, okay, it's definitely not Peter. Maybe it's his angel. Maybe it's his angel. Maybe God is sending us a message that looks like Peter. But even still, there's no way it could be him is what they would argue. Isn't his release, isn't him standing at the door knocking in the middle of the night, isn't that exactly what they were literally praying for in that moment when he knocks on the door? Weren't they in earnest prayer for the well-being and freedom of their friend? 
See, I think this is one of those places that we see in the book of Acts where we see that these early followers in the book of Acts, they weren't like super Christians. You know what I mean? Like, they're people. They questioned and they struggled and they wrestled with these things and they prayed and maybe they did it with great fervor and passion and desire, but the size of their faith was still small and frail at times. So maybe, yeah, they're praying, God, would you deliver Peter? God, would you rescue Peter? But for some of them, it was, I don't think God's going to actually do this one. That's a big prayer request. Peter's really guarded. They got, they got a whole squad. They got multiple squads guarding him. How in the world would God actually rescue him this time? But they had enough faith to pray and say, God, do something. See, it's okay if your faith is small, because small faith in a big God still produces things. And so finally, Rhoda convinces them, okay, fine, come and see. They go and they open the door, and it's Peter, and they realize it's Peter, and they must have started yelling and hollering and screaming, because he has to silence them and tell them, hey, be quiet, because once again, we see in verse 17, he's still a fugitive. So like, hey, let's be cool. He tells the believers, I want you, he tells them what happened. He tells them about the angel and the light and the chains and everything else. And he says, I want you to tell James, that's Jesus' brother, tell him, tell the other believers, tell them I'm okay, but I got to go. And so he leaves and says he went somewhere else. To this day, Peter's whereabouts from this point, he goes in hiding and he hides so well that to this day, scholars have no idea where he shows up, where he ends up. We do know eventually he meets up with Paul in Antioch. But other than that, Peter's story is pretty much finished. He gets mentioned one more time in the book of Acts in a couple of chapters, but there's this long gap of where did Peter go hiding? We have no idea. The next morning, though, as the sun breaks, there's a great commotion when the guards are rotating and realizing, right, these two guards who were sleeping next to Peter wake up and realize they are chained to nobody. Peter is nowhere to be found. Herod has his men search the city for him, and Peter is long gone. Herod even goes so far as to interrogate his own men, thinking it was an inside job. He doesn't like what he hears, and he has some of them put to death for their failure. Again, if everyone involved with guarding Peter was put to death because Herod was mad, there were 16 soldiers who were put to death because Herod was embarrassed. The next morning, there was no Peter to parade around. No big show and spectacle to make. Herod had to just pretend like nothing had happened. In fact, he doesn't just pretend like nothing had happened. Instead, he goes and leaves town so he doesn't have to face the backlash of ridicule on his reputation. He just bails. But the people knew. Word traveled back then, not as quick as it does now, but word traveled. Big bad Herod and his big bad muscle couldn't contain Peter even with 16 guards. This Christian church has once again been victorious. Herod's reputation and his perceived authority and power demonstrated by his impressive army and soldiers was stripped away by the power and will of God. God goes by many names in the Bible. One of those names in the Old Testament is El Shaddai. El Shaddai means God Almighty. And a right understanding of who we are in relation to who God is, God Almighty, should produce in us an appropriately placed fear and awe in the power and control over all existence that God has. Yes, God is love and just and kind and gentle and true, but he is also the almighty creator of all existence, the ultimate authority by which all things are held together and all things serve his glory. The power and authority God has should cause in us a little bit of fear within us. It's kind of like when you're driving and there's a police car behind you. And all of a sudden, your hands go to 10 and 2. Whatever speed you were driving at, you just dropped it by 5 miles per hour. You're signaling real clear. I mean, like everything gets, right? Your driving habits change. Why? Because there's a power and authority that is above you in your rearview mirror. And that changes how we act. There's a power and authority in this world who created this world, who sustains this world, and it should have an effect on how we relate to him and to one another. 
The ultimate power, majesty, holiness, goodness, grace, and amazingness of God should now and will in the future cause awe-inspiring reverence to who he is in us. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is a right understanding of who we are, created and finite in relation to who he is, powerful, almighty, uncreated, and eternal. C.S. Lewis says it this way in Mere Christianity. He says, in God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. Because a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Reverence is the combination of admiration and fear and awe and dread. It is wonder and terror, these things mixed together. And the fact that God is El Shaddai, God Almighty, should inspire reverence in us in who he is. It didn't for Herod. He saw God and a relationship with him as a means to an end, as more popularity, more power, more influence. He completely missed the greatness of God, and because of God's greatness, we know that we can find rest and comfort in the midst of the, of the one with all the power. Herod missed all of that. Psalm 91, verse 1 and 2, it says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. As we encounter and endure the hardships and darkness and evil of this world and in our own hearts, we know that we have a God who is in control of all things at all times. A God that we can run to, that we can hide in, that we can take refuge in. God is El Shaddai, God Almighty. He is greater than everything, greater than anything, greater than our sins, greater than our shame, greater than our guilt, greater than our past, greater than our present, greater than our future. There is nothing too big for God to handle, including your sin. Jesus at the cross said it is finished and it's done. Jesus through the cross conquers sin, shame, guilt. At the cross, he conquered everything. Let the reality of the power and majesty of God drive you to run toward him. That when you sin, it doesn't drive you away from him to go and run and hide and bury it deep within yourself, but to go to God and confess and repent and live into the new life that was purchased for you by the blood of Jesus at the cross. It is God Almighty that had the power to rescue Peter, to remove those chains, to swing open that city gate, and to keep him from certain death. And in doing so, word gets spread around as Herod had to go run and hide so he didn't face public embarrassment. News traveled that, again, those Christians had another victory. At the end of the day, it wasn't Herod's power and reputation that was bolstered, but God's. Herod's power and reputation was taken from him by the one who has all the power, God Almighty. And it wasn't just that God had the power to do these things, to act in this way, but he also has the right. He has the authority to do so because God is sovereign. He is king. And if you are a king, it means you have a kingdom. Whether it be the king of England, the king of France, the king of Candyland, every king has a kingdom. Has one who is above and beyond all other power and authority. See, a king is not subject to checks and balances or a democratic vote. He is the ultimate highest authority and power. What he says, what he wants, goes. Every king has a will, has a desire for their kingdom. We hear it when we pray the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Laid out in history, the will of every earthly king has always resulted in the desire for more. More power, more authority, more influence, more money, more land, more earthly, tangible expressions of greatness. And kingdom after kingdom has been driven by this hunt for more, for greater, for better, for best. And if you have studied history at any level, you know that every kingdom and every king will fail. Whether it's Babylon, or the Persians, or the Romans, 
I mean, Rome was probably the greatest empire to ever exist, right? It spanned basically the entire known world. And for hundreds of years, Romans not only ruled, but they ruled in peace, which means they conquered everybody or anyone they didn't conquer. They had enough relation, good relationship. Nobody wanted to test them. And for all that we ascribe to the mighty Roman Empire, for all the developments and concepts that are still in place today, you can go to Rome, you can pay 50 bucks, and you can walk on some of those streets, some of those same streets that Jesus himself walked on. You can stand in the midst of the Colosseum where they used to take Christians and feed them to hungry lions. You can hear about all of these things from tour guides because you will go as a tourist taking your pictures looking at this ancient fallen empire that is nothing more than crumbling concrete. Every earthly kingdom will fail, except the king of kings and his kingdom. The eternal king, the eternal king Jesus and his eternal kingdom are just that, eternal, lasting forever, which makes his reign as king and his kingdom greater than every other one that has come before and every that will come after. Herod believed himself to be untouchable, all-powerful, able to flaunt his authority and control and influence at any point, however he saw fit. The murder of James, the arrest of Peter, these things were done to show off his power and to build his credibility and influence. Instead, what happens? Those believers in Jerusalem had their own faith and prayer life strengthened as they experienced firsthand that God can do and will do miraculous things. And look at verse 24. The word of God increased and multiplied. Where Herod's popularity and power took a hit, the word and influence of God only increased and multiplied because of these actions. God took his power and reputation, and ultimately God takes Herod's life. While in Caesarea licking his wounds and hiding out, Herod has a situation to deal with. The cities of Tyre and Sidon depend on Galilee for their food distribution. And these cities were at odds with Herod for some reason. So they send representatives to go and try and smooth things over. They make nice with his number one assistant, Blastus. That's a great name. There's this public plea to the king. We need your help. We need you to step in. We need food and supplies from your supply chain. And so the king has the chance to not only address these concerned citizens, but also the people in the area who gathered, because when the king shows up, it's an event. And this is a cool place in history where the Bible syncs up with history and, and reminds us that these aren't just stories. These aren't fairy tales. These aren't myths that were made up. We have an actual historian named Josephus who was writing, who lived at the time and wrote at the time, and he writes a very detailed account of Herod's death which is all in line with Luke's very short, much shorter version. You should go, homework for this week, go look up Josephus writing about Herod's death. Luke gives us a very brief summary of what happened. Herod makes a spectacle of himself. He puts on his shiny silver robes and he sits on his throne and his throne in this area was positioned in such a way where there were these big, grand, magnificent windows that were open behind him. And he sits at the beginning of the day as the sun is coming up and he's got this fancy, shiny, silver robe on. And as the light comes through these big windows, it shines on him, almost illuminating him, showing his power just by sitting there high and elevated above everyone else with the light reflecting off of him. He makes a spectacle of himself and he begins to speak in that sort of politician word salad, you know, where he kind of, he talks a bunch, but he doesn't actually say anything. But the people are eating it up. This is not a mere man. This is not a mortal. This is the voice of a God, they say. He knew better. He knew. Maybe not personally, maybe not experientially, maybe he didn't actually ever believe, but he knew the God of the Israelites. He knew. He read the words. He had been around for the celebrations. He knew the Torah. He knew what was happening in that moment, and he could have shut it down. Compare his lack of of redirect, his lack of humility in this situation, with the multiple times in the book of Acts as we've studied it, that Peter gets the same kind of adulation after he heals the crippled man, when he walks in to Cornelius' house and Cornelius falls to his feet worshiping Peter, and how quick every time Peter is to tell people, it's not about me, it's about God, it's not about me, it's about Jesus, every time. Instead, Herod soaks up the attention. He revels in it. 
He delights in it. He's probably scheming in this moment how he could use this to bolster his own role and place in the government. But whatever concocted idea he has, he doesn't get a chance to put it into action because God's patience has run out on Herod. His fake dedication to, to Judaism, his zeal for power and influence, his abuses of that power and influence, his mockery of God by allowing this blasphemous adulation to continue, all of it comes to a screeching halt. Jesus, in interacting with the Pharisees one time, he tells the Pharisees, you are like whitewashed tombs. You're smooth and clean on the outside, but inside. You are full of rot and decay and death. That's who Herod was. He was all about the appearance, all about the show, all about the outside, the easy surface level relationships, but he was rotting from the inside out, and that is how he died, rotting from the inside out, where he doubles over in stomach pain, and it takes five days, but eventually his life is taken from him, and when they cut him open, there are worms within him. If you oppose God, you will lose. Isaiah 40 says, All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. No opposition to God lasts. When the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites, did they succeed in keeping them subservient forever? No. Did the Philistines, who go to battle and war time after time throughout the Old Testament, did they ever actually succeed in wiping the Israelites out? No. The Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, every time they come, they conquer, they last for a while, they subjugate, they kill a bunch, but at the end, they all fall. Even Rome, the great conquering strength and power and might, couldn't wipe out God's people. Even when they were feeding those Christians to the hungry lions and using Christian bodies as human torches to light garden parties, it didn't stop, it didn't eliminate God's people, it didn't stop the church from continuing to grow. Instead, all it did was to serve to increase and multiply God's people. And those who have opposed him, those who have opposed God, those who have stood in his way of God and his will, have fallen to the wayside every time. Evil will always be punished. God is just and will have his justice. It might not happen in how we want it to or when we want it to. Not every evil leader gets publicly killed by God as an act of judgment while they were actively defying God, as Herod does. But whether it is in this life or in the one to come, evil is punished Nobody gets away with anything. Judgment is coming. Justice will be had. Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Psalm 89.14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. God is just, always, and will always have his justice. Those who oppose God will meet their judgment. That goes for the people who perform unspeakable evils on a broad scale, and for those individuals who daily choose to rebel against God and refuse to accept the forgiveness and grace offered by placing your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Judgment and justice is coming for all people, and all who rebel against God will be punished. But what about James? Remember how this chapter started. James was killed. I mean, that seems like Herod got away with that one, right? I mean, yes, Herod ends up dead, but he still took out one of the 12, right? He took out one of the pillars. Did he get away with it? Or did he instead actually just step into the will of providence of God without knowing it? In Mark 10, James and his brother John go up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we've got to ask you a question. Jesus says, sure, what do you got, guys? 
They say, we want you to give us a place of prominence in your kingdom. Let us sit on your right and left hand. Let us have whatever we want, is basically what they ask him. Jesus responds to them and says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. James and John, there's going to come a day. It's going to come a day when you're going to go through what I'm about to go through. And what Jesus was talking about was going to the cross. James and John, you will suffer and you will lose your life for my sake. Way before even his own death, Jesus told James, this is how things are going to go for you. And so here, Herod, by killing James, all he was doing was stepping into what God had already promised. It was time for James to go home. To go be with his Savior and teacher and friend. To go and dwell dwell for the rest of eternity with God. To be welcomed in by Jesus to to see Jesus, to see Stephen, the first martyr, to receive his eternal rest and presence of God. And because of the death of James, it led to embolden Herod to arrest Peter, sending him on this downward path. Since God declared that he had a people, there have been others trying to oppose God's people, and with that, trying to oppose God. Since the beginning, Even still today, there are those with power and influence all over the world who use their platforms to try and attack and destroy Christianity and eradicate it from the world. It cannot be done. It hasn't happened yet. It's not gonna. Can they do damage? Sure. Absolutely. Millions upon millions have died refusing to recant their faith. Millions upon millions have suffered for the name of Jesus. Why have they done that? Why have they allowed that to happen? Why have they given their lives? Why have they endured that suffering? Because they trust in the God who is king over all kings and has a kingdom that has no end. And over and over we see throughout history that as God's people are persecuted, the church continues to grow. The early church theologian Tertullian famously said, the blood of the martyrs is the seeds of the church. But we said before, every kingdom fails, every king fails. So why trust and submit to this one? Why trust and submit to this Jesus who claims to be king? Why trust in God as king and his kingdom if everything and everyone else fails? Because our king is the king. He's not a king. And a kingdom reflects its king. The authority and will of how the kingdom looks comes from the king itself. It reflects him. So if you want to know what the kingdom looks like, you look at the king. If you want to know what the king looks like, you look at his kingdom. All the good we know of the king, all the good we know of who God is, of his character and his will, tells us what to expect as members of the kingdom of God. The glimpses we get from Jesus in the Gospels of how he interacts with the world shows us what that king is like. In Matthew 8, when Jesus heals the leper, he doesn't just heal the leper because he can. He could just say it and the leper would be healed. No, he goes up to the leper and he touches him. Why? Because leprosy was this isolating, cruel sickness that kept you living out amongst no one. Even lepers didn't want to live with other lepers. Leper colonies had people living miles and miles apart from one another because no matter how bad your leprosy was, you didn't want that guy's leprosy. It was this isolating thing that eliminated you from all human contact. Jesus walks up to this leper and he touches him. Probably for the first time in his life, he touches this man because there's compassion in our God. He had compassion on a crowd of thousands when he feeds them some fish and loaves. And again, we see the heart and generosity of our king. That's who he is. In the Old Testament, we see God give laws and instructions on how to be generous and intentional with the orphans, the widows, the immigrants, the sick and the weak. The justice needed to happen and be acted upon by God's people. He says, if you're my people, you reflect me to this world. And so those who have been outcast, those who are taken advantage of, you protect them, you care for them, and that shows those people who I am. The areas of the kingdom, when they break through, it is beautiful and pure. And we get these small glimpses of what our king and our kingdom that is to come will look like. When the church is actually doing the things, living these things out, we are reflecting to the world. We are declaring to the world and preaching and proclaiming with our words and actions who our king is. 
Too many people and too many things claim to be a good king. But there is no one, no object, no person, no concept or political party, no vague spirituality that can ever truly be a good king because all of them are flawed, created, and temporary and failing away. The only good king is the king, the creator of all existence. His authority and power comes from himself. He didn't have to earn it or win it or take it from someone else. It is his because he is the uncreated creator of all existence. His authority is his own. His power and presence and character are good. He is worthy to be praised. He is worthy to be adored. And he shows us that he is trustworthy and true and that we can submit to him willingly, openly, and confidently because we know who he is. Because we know the kind of king that he is. The kind of kingdom that he brings. He is trustworthy. He is reliable. He is gracious and merciful and loving and just. And all of these different attributes and all of these things flow into the kingdom of God. That is what the kingdom of God is going to look like. We get these glimpses of it here. We get these moments in the gospel where Jesus shows us what his kingdom is going to look like. What it's going to be like when there will be no more pain, no more sickness, no more death. All of these things will be done and gone. We see it played out here. When the church, when God's people are reflecting his character and qualities into the world, that is the kingdom of God breaking through, the kingdom of God moving in this place, in this dark world. It doesn't happen perfectly. It doesn't happen consistently. But when it happens, it is these beautiful images, these moments, these pictures of the kingdom that awaits us and reminds us of the authority under which we willingly submit as God's children. Herod tried to oppose God, and it worked for a while. By all accounts, he was getting away with it for a long time until one day when he wasn't. If you are not a Christian, repent. You know you. You know your heart. You know your story. You know where you stand with Jesus. You know if you're putting on a show. You know if you're trying to win, earn, or impress God or others. I'm begging you, stop. It's not working. It's just exhausting, and it's killing you. And for some, you're not even putting on a show. You're actively and openly in rebellion against God, opposing him and his morality and his will, all of it. Stop, because it's not working, and it's killing you. One day, you will stand before God. All of us will. We will stand before the almighty, sovereign king and judge of all existence. And if you stand before him trying to justify your status or your place or your existence with anything other than by the grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, you are condemned to hell. You are damned for eternity. Your eternity will be marked by a darkness and separation from the very source of light and life. Today is that day to admit your need for a savior. Admit you can't do it on your own. Admit you need help. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came to earth to die for your sins in your place. Choose for Jesus to be not only your Savior, but your King. You can fool lots of people. You might even fool yourself and convince yourself that you're better off than you think you are, but you can never fool God. He knows who are his and who are not his. And he wants you to be one of his. He wants to invite you into his family. He is calling for you today. He is inviting for you today to turn toward him and choose him and embrace him. And those who are walking in the family of God, those who are Christians, if within you, you have some hidden sin, you have that thing that you think you got unlocked, you have control of, that it's just between you and nobody else, nobody sees it, nobody knows about it, it's just your own personal pet project of sin. You know God is good. You know that he forgives. You know he is more powerful. You know that with him, there is a power within you that can overcome whatever stronghold that may be weighing on you and holding you back. You were bought by the blood of Jesus to be free. So Christian, be free. Stop voluntarily chaining yourself up to your sin. Be free. Repent and walk in the light. For all of us, we need to remember, we need to rediscover the gospel on a daily, best, daily basis and remember that there is new life to be had through Christ. With him there is life and hope and joy and fullness and rest. 
Without him, there is opposing him. There is death and isolation and condemnation. There is no third option here. You are either for God, with God, or against him. If you oppose him, if you stand against him, you will lose everything. But at the same time, that perfect God of all existence offers you everything. He offers you life and hope and restoration, forgiveness purchased by his own blood, offered to you with nothing expected in return. There is grace to be had for all of us because Jesus, the almighty sovereign king of existence, went to the cross and died on the cross for our sins in our place. If you oppose God, you will lose. But if you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you are his, then as Paul writes in Romans 8, if God is for us, who could stand against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you oppose God, you will lose. But if God is for us, nothing can stand against us. Let's pray. You make it real clear. As I said before, there are places in the Bible that we struggle with, we wrestle with, we try to figure out how to contextualize, but on this, you make it very clear. You have chosen to invite all of existence, all of your creation into a relationship with you. You've sent your son to die for us. You have made the way. You call us. You equip us. You welcome us in. And if we choose not to, if we reject you, if if we ignore that gift, it ends so, so poorly. No matter what this life, no matter what this world wants to try and convince us of, no matter what they want to try and tell us about power and influence and money, and it's all falling away. And one day we have to stand before you and give account. One day we have to stand before you. And if we stand on our own two feet, we are... God, I pray for the lost. I pray that you would be patient. That you would give them another chance. That you would give them another day. That you would give them another moment, another opportunity to come and know you and hear from you and to know that there is life and rest and hope and forgiveness. That there is nothing that anyone has in their past, present, or future that is too big for you to handle that there is always more grace to be had at the cross. God, I pray for those of us who know that, who who experientially, intellectually, we know it, we've walked in it, we've seen it, and yet we get distracted and we wander away and we fall away and we lose sight of who you are. God, be patient with us. Call us back. Thank you for being the God who comes to get us, the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to come get us when we have wandered away to protect us and care for us. God, you have made it very clear. If we oppose you, if we are against you, if we have rejected you, then eternity separated from you and from all of existence is what we have coming. God, we thank you that you are just, that you're gracious and merciful, that that though we see evil in this world, though we have experienced it, some of us firsthand to untold degrees, 
we know that at the end you will have your justice, that there will be vindication, that there will be your justice had and your peace had. We take rest in that, we take comfort in that, and Lord, help that to be something that helps us persevere as we continue to see and watch and experience injustice. God, I pray for our hearts. I pray that you would strengthen those who are already walking with you, that you would encourage us, that you would help us to be the lights in the world that you have made us to be, to shine the light of the gospel through our words and actions. God, so many of us, all of us know someone, some ones who are lost, who are opposing you actively, currently. God, I pray that you would give us opportunities to speak truth into their lives. You don't need us, but you use us for things like this to share your word, to share your truth, and to invite people to know you as the good king. The good king in control of all things, who is good and just and right and true. May we take rest in that and knowing that your kingdom is good and that we have the chance to show people glimpses of how good it can be. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for who you are, for what you have done, what you are doing, and what you're going to do. We thank you and praise you in your name.